Hi, Salima here. Please help us produce our people-powered radio at radioproject.org. Thank you, and here's the show. I'm Monica Lopez, this week on Making Contact. The reality is, in the past two years, Las Vegas was the deadliest lone gunman shooting in the history of the United States. Parkland was the deadliest high school shooting in the history of the United States. Pittsburgh was the deadliest attack on American Jews in the history of the United States. Sutherland Springs was the deadliest house of worship shooting in the history of the United States. And now El Paso is the deadliest attack on American Latinos in the history of the United States. And what had they done? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. In spite of the recent increase in mass shootings, the majority of gun injuries and deaths are in fact a result of suicides, homicides, accidental shootings, and domestic violence. You know, I was young, single, um, I met him at a bar, and I approached him, surprisingly. Sofia Garcia met her ex-husband in her early 20s. I found him attractive, I approached him, and um, we immediately started dating, and it was like, it was a whirlwind uh, relationship. You know, it was like, my prince charming, he like swept me off my feet, I mean, said all the right things, made me feel really good. Um, it's like whining and dining, and he was like bending over backwards for me, I felt like, mo- like most of the time. Um, and that, that was kind of like the experience in the initial uh, relationship. But it wasn't long before Sophia's partner revealed a darker side to his personality. Like a charming monster. Like, um, I mean, people loved him. Like, I remember people telling us, you guys are like the power couple. Your life is just perfect. The way he treats you, the way he loves you. Like on social media, he would profess his undying love to me. And it was like, I was the best thing that ever happened to him. But behind closed doors, I was like the worst thing that ever happened. I would say the very first time that it was something alarming um, was when I found out that I was going to have my child. And I remember him getting physical with me for the first time where he threw me on the bed and he said, um, kill the FM baby. Those were his words. Sophia is one of 25% of U.S. women who experience some form of intimate partner violence in her lifetime. Soon after this incident, she found herself in a pattern of violence, reconciliation, and escalation. I mean, I remember coming home from having my son, and, you know, you're exhausted from having a baby, being in a hospital, and I remember I plopped myself on the couch. And um, I guess he couldn't wake me up, or I don't know, but I, I... he was holding the baby, and I remember he kicked me. This is day one from having come home from the hospital, and he kicked me to woke, wake me up, and that's what startled me. He's like, wake up, the baby's hungry. It, it progressed to he's angry over something. Baby's crying. Um, he's tired. He wants to go to sleep, something. There was, like, almost no progression to his anger. It was like, I, I didn't understand that, you know, and... and I think the worst one was when I, I remember had, I had my son, my son on my chest. I can't tell you what the argument was about. But I remember he pulled out one of his guns. He had an arsenal of weapons. And I remember he took it out. I had my son on my chest and he pointed it at my head. And he said, I'm going to fucking kill you tonight. And I remember I had my son. My son had a onesie and I ran out of the house. 
Sophia's ex-husband put the gun down and told her to stop. He apologized and said that he couldn't believe what he'd just done. You know, people always say, like, why don't women leave these situations, you know? And it's like, I would have never thought I would have been in that situation. Like, ever, ever would I ever think that I would be in that situation. But they deplete you of, of your self-esteem and who you are. And, you know, um, yeah, that was hard. And I remember coming back and I remember um, at that time I hadn't told anybody my story. I was like, I, nobody needs to hear this. This is between us. You know, and I, the only person I reached out to was his mom. And his mom's response was, uh, I think you have postpartum depression. On average, it takes roughly seven attempts to leave before a survivor permanently exits an abusive relationship. And like so many others, Sophia stayed and tried to make the marriage work. My cultural background is like you stay with the person you're with for the rest of your life. Like that's whoever you have children with or whoever you're married with. You just tough it out. And that's almost like the success. Like, we've been married 30, 40 years, you know, but there's a lot of stuff that has happened in those years, you know, that most women shouldn't, you know, have to deal with, you know. And I think that, I mean, whether it's based on being feminine or your cultural background, like, I think that we need to let people know that you don't have to stay tied to these situations. If her partner has access to a gun, a woman in an abusive relationship is five times more likely to be killed by her partner but there are ways to leave the relationship and put legal protections in place with restraining orders. Two that could be used in situations like Sophia's are the comprehensive domestic violence restraining order and a much more specific law, the gun violence restraining order. But it can take time for people who've endured violent relationships to get up the nerve and the money to leave. You can't force someone to go through a process they're not ready for. Kendra Thomas practices family law and is a trustee for the L.A. County Bar's Domestic Violence Legal Services Project, which offers legal aid for victims of violence. She's also Sophia Garcia's attorney. The legal project helps people with their paperwork for restraining orders, to prepare for their hearings, and help with interacting with law enforcement. The domestic violence restraining order actually restrains people from being able to come somewhere being able to be within a certain number of feet. You can also get financial orders. You can get child custody orders. You can get support orders. So you can go in on just a domestic violence hearing, and if you've made the appropriate request, you can walk out with orders that are very encompassing. We juxtapose that against a gun violence restraining order, which really the sole purpose of that is to keep guns away. So the people who can apply for a gun violence restraining order, the window of people is much more limited. Because the law was intended to prevent a shooting from happening, only immediate family and members of the same household, who are more likely to spot concerning behavior, as well as law enforcement, are allowed to apply for a gun violence restraining order. When Sophia was living with her ex-husband, that kind of restraining order didn't exist, so she had to look for other options. It's like, I think that's when I realized I'm like, well, he treats me like crap. He has no respect for me. He beats me. He tells me he's going to kill me. And I remember thinking about my son. <laughs> and just thinking, like, I couldn't raise him like that. I felt like he was the one that deserved a better life. And if I wanted to raise him to be a good man, I couldn't keep him in a home um, where he was watching this happen. And... What finally did it for me was uh, looking in his phone and, and finding out that there was another woman and realizing that um, all the savings and money that we had, supposedly, 
uh, to buy a new home was all gone. And I, I left. I left. In California, almost half of all violent deaths in 2017 were gun-related. That's according to a report by the California Department of Public Health. That year, guns were used in over 70% of all California homicides, and in nearly 40% of suicides. There are several restraining orders that prohibit someone from owning or possessing firearms, but to get the order, you have to wait for a crime to be committed. That includes cases of intimate partner violence. Gun violence restraining orders, which are much more limited in scope, are designed to keep shootings from happening in the first place. The law went into effect in California on January 1, 2016, but they weren't being used as frequently as some lawmakers had hoped. Assemblymember Phil Ting sponsored a bill that would expand the scope of who could file for a gun violence restraining order. There was a fear when this was first introduced that there would be um, you know, millions of gun violence restraining orders issued and really that gun owners would be um, targeted unfairly. And at this point, after three years, we've seen only 600 gun violence restraining orders. And, and one of the reasons we want to expand the bill is, frankly, we've seen law enforcement, unfortunately, uh, be slow to adopt. At this point, I believe uh, the two counties that I represent, San Francisco's only issued one, and San Mateo's issued zero. The original gun violence restraining order law only allows members of the same household, immediate family, and law enforcement to file for a GVRO. Cops can't be everywhere. Law enforcement can't be everywhere. If a coworker feels concerned about an individual and they hear about them owning guns and uh, they have concerns that the gun might be used inappropriately, uh, they can take power back in their own hands so that they don't have to go to work in fear of getting shot, unfortunately, where we've seen so many other workplaces get shot up. Um, same with the teacher, same with the principal. If they're hearing behavior or watching behavior that is uh, concerning, they can take the power back in their own hands. They don't have to wait for law enforcement to go do something. They can go to court. They can get a gun violence restraining order. Assemblymember Ting sponsored the same bill in 2018, which was vetoed by then-Governor Jerry Brown. The fact that gun violence restraining orders have been underutilized statewide has not gone unnoticed. And in light of mass shootings in 2018 at the Borderline Bar and Grill, and in 2019 at a garlic festival, state lawmakers submitted about a half dozen bills to expand, refine, and promote the use of gun violence restraining orders. Assemblymember Jackie Irwin represents Ventura and parts of L.A. County. Thousand Oaks right here in the 44th District is one of those that experienced uh, gun violence. So right after the shooting at Borderline, I spoke to community members and our local um, sheriff's department, and I asked what could California do that it isn't doing already. Irwin introduced three gun-related bills. Right now, GVROs are good for up to one year. One bill would extend its effect up to five years. Another would promote law enforcement education about the order by requiring police and sheriff's departments to institutionalize their own gun violence restraining order policies. We want to make sure that these policies are decided at the local level so that you take into account the values of the community and uh, their relationship with the police department or the sheriff's department and that you really have a policy that's tailored for your specific community. The third bill creates a pilot program with four county sheriff's departments to help eliminate the backlog on the Armed and Prohibited Persons System, or APPS database. 
It's administered through State Attorney General Javier Becerra's office. And what we would basically like them to do, which is uh, gather all the um, stakeholder groups and discuss what the best way is to implement this, how to work with the attorney general to get the list of prohibited possessors, how to figure out where people are currently living, and try to help the attorney general reduce the backlog on that list. And so that comes with the $3 million budget allocation. And uh, the $3 million will be distributed to the four counties. And then we want to make sure that we get really good data back on what the best ways are to remove guns from those that shouldn't have them. According to the Attorney General's office, there are over 23,000 people on the list who are not supposed to have guns. But because the legal solutions are just that, tied up in the workings of cops and courts, it can lead to backlogs not just at the state level, but in local jurisdictions as well. In one domestic violence case, attorney Kendra Thomas faced a situation where the other party was mentally unstable and directed his anger at her office. It led to us being actually included on the restraining order. It resulted in um, you know, threats to take me out personally, to come shoot up the office, to, and believe it or not, that was actually a very difficult situation to navigate because A, the law doesn't necessarily apply to one's attorney or advocate, and B, it's very difficult, or we found it very difficult at the time, to get the police to take the situation seriously because they're so inundated with restraining orders and with violations of restraining orders that it actually got to the point where some of the information we were given about enforcing the restraining order was a, well, let's see if it escalates. There's a lot of gray area when you're not just dealing with the restraining order, which we need to remember is really just a piece of paper. There's also, once you have the piece of paper, the enforcement of it, and what to do when you have someone who's not swayed by the fact that a judge has made certain orders. A case like that happened in the spring of 2019. Brenda Renteria, a mother who'd obtained a domestic violence restraining order, went to the Hawthorne Police Department for a custody exchange. When she approached the station entrance to pick up her toddler, the baby's father, Jacob Munn, reportedly ran from the parking lot and fatally shot her with a shotgun. In Sophia's case, six months after the first restraining order was issued, the court learned that Sophia's husband still had access to another gun. The judge ordered him to turn it in immediately. I mean, I think sometimes we put the emphasis on um, the police or the courts or that there's this system out there that's going to track all of this. Um, I think there's a breakdown in, in those systems and that they're not communicating. Uh, it's very hard to keep track of... Um, you know, who has guns, where these guns are, um, how they're being utilized. Um, and, I, and I think that this is part of the reason why we have so much gun violence and such access to, to these weapons that can be deadly and harmful. You're listening to Guns and Restraining Orders on Making Contact. This program is offered for free to radio stations around the world. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is making underscore contact. And now back to guns and restraining orders. In 2012, Sofia Garcia escaped from a physically and emotionally violent relationship. I left, but it wasn't it wasn't easy. Um, I mean, he was threatening my family. He called my sister and my mom and threatened to kill them. Um, he said he was going to come after me. Um, and I think at that point, 
I was still trying to engage with him and I don't know why. Um, but I remember that's how I ended up at the clinic. The clinic is part of the L.A. County Bar's Domestic Violence Legal Services Project. This is going to end up a tragedy is what I felt like. And I remember going to the to the clinic and trying to file a domestic violence a restraining order. And I remember walking out. I probably walked out three or four times. I was like, I can't do it. I was like, I'm not going to do this. Like, there's no way. Like, what? I mean, this is who does who does restraining orders? Like, it's not me. It's not my situation. And I remember walking in and, and I remember the director, she, she grabbed my leg and she said, let me tell you something. The last girl who walked in like you is dead. And that was like, it shattered me. I was like, how am I in this situation? And, and then, and she was the other person, the second person who told me, I want you to know that none of this is your fault. Just hearing those words when you've been emotionally beat down and you know, feeling like you're the cause of, of the abuse or the threats. I'm the one that broke up my family. Like, that was, like, the little ray of hope that I, I needed like, keep going on. When an abusive partner has access to firearms, the likelihood that the victim will be killed by their partner is five times greater. And even with a restraining order in place, it can take some time before the abusive partner surrenders their guns and ammunition. It could be a very long period of time, and a day can make a big difference in the life of somebody who's fearful of someone who has access to guns and, and appears potentially harmful. San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott is the most prolific filer of gun violence restraining orders in the state of California. With domestic violence, um, if it's being proven as a crime, that's going to take some time before you have a crime. We can we can take the gun away from an individual before a crime is proven. So that allows us to intervene at the beginning of the troublesome conduct and remove the gun. So I, th I think that that is a, that's a plus, of course, because we don't have to wait for something awful to happen. We don't need to wait for a judge to convict somebody of a crime. We're able to intervene early and hopefully keep that person safe. The other possible benefit of using a gun violence restraining order in a domestic violence situation is that the police department can file the order on behalf of the victim. Having your uh, law enforcement department take that on takes the burden off of a victim who could be going through a lot of trauma and fear. That's another benefit of having a gun violence restraining order is removing that victim from the process and our law enforcement department will take that up themselves instead of putting that burden onto the victim. Sophia, on the other hand, stuck with the process and met her attorney, Kendra Thomas. At the time, there was no such thing as a gun violence restraining order in California. But even so, Thomas explains that a gun violence restraining order alone would not include the custody, support, and other orders afforded by a domestic violence restraining order. One thing that the code does, though, that's really interesting, to the extent you have concern about someone, they've given great discretion to police officers to go in and make an application. Here's what I'm concerned about. Here's why I'm concerned about it. A police officer has the ability, having no family relation to the individual, to make an application orally or written for a gun violence restraining order against someone. So that's kind of the catch-all. And then what are we getting when we walk out of court with that order? It's not an order to keep someone away. It's merely an order to take away their firearms. According to the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms, 
California is second only to Texas for the most number of guns owned by state. Chris was our only child, and he was everything to us. In 2014, Richard Martinez's son, Christopher, was one of six people killed and 14 injured in Isla Vista, California. You know, he was just the center of my life. I talked about him every single day, thought about him every single day. And, uh, you know, there's nothing that, uh, that I can do to bring him back. And um, I just don't want what happened to us to happen to other families. I can't accept the way that my son died, and I refuse to accept that in the 21st century in the United States of America, we have to live like this. It's just, uh, it's a failure of leadership, really. After the Isla Vista murders, state lawmakers passed the Gun Violence Restraining Order Law in 2014, and Richard Martinez and others campaigned fervently to get it passed. Since his son's death, Martinez has become a gun violence prevention advocate working with the Survivors Network for Every Town for Gun Safety. The reality is, in the past two years, Las Vegas was the deadliest lone gunman shooting in the history of the United States. Parkland was the deadliest high school shooting in the history of the United States. Pittsburgh was the deadliest attack on American Jews in the history of the United States. Sutherland Springs was the deadliest house of worship shooting in the history of the United States. And now El Paso is the deadliest attack on American Latinos in the history of the United States. And what had they done? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Federal legislation has been slow to emerge. Meanwhile, states have passed versions of their own red flag laws in the absence of congressional action bringing the total number of states with red flag laws of their own to 17 and the District of Columbia. California's red flag law, the Gun Violence Restraining Order, went into effect in 2016. But in the first two years, only 190 GVROs were filed statewide. That means that there still isn't a whole lot of data or experience to determine how the orders are working and affecting those involved in the restraining order process. You can pass a law, but that doesn't mean it's going to get used. And so there's a, there's a learning curve in there. Um, where it takes time for these things to get implemented. Enter San Diego City Attorney Mara Elliott. I ran for city attorney and won in 2016 and made this a priority for my office to try to tackle gun violence in the most meaningful way we could. And I had been studying gun violence restraining orders, which was a tool that came into the um, state books, into the law, uh, back after the UC Santa Barbara murders and found that that was something that we could do effectively as a city, but we didn't have the program in effect yet. So we made that a priority, called around to other jurisdictions in California and found that nobody else was doing it. So Elliott's office created a gun violence restraining order program. They started by getting buy-in from local law enforcement and the courts. And our court system hadn't seen gun violence restraining orders because nobody else was using them. So we started our own program here felt like we really had created something that could be modeled by other agencies. In 2016, before Elliott took office, San Diego County saw a total of four gun violence restraining orders. By the end of 2018, San Diego courts had issued just over 200 orders. The cases have been varied and at times disturbing. And one of the first cases involved a, uh, a person who was going through post-traumatic stress. 
He was on medication, he was drinking, and he had access to a gun. So he was in his backyard shooting at what he believed to be raccoons. And this is one of the circumstances where the person whose guns were removed temporarily appeared to be grateful. We had another individual that um, had, he was starting to slip. Um, I believe he had dementia and thought that his wife, this was an elderly couple around 80, was having an affair with a neighbor. So he went after her with a gun and she escaped her home and she was barefoot and she went over cactus. And you can imagine the desperation for somebody to run from their home through cactus barefoot. We had a situation where a person who worked at a car dealership in one of our communities had told his coworkers that he admired a mass shooter in Las Vegas for what he had done and he thought he was a hero. So we took that seriously too. And this was a person who was having some employment issues and indicated that if he were ever terminated, he might come back and express his frustration using a gun. From 2016 to 2018, among the people who've had to surrender their firearms in San Diego County, over half were white and more than three-fourths were men. Assemblymember Phil Ting secured a $50,000 budget allocation for statewide training at the city attorney's request. Since then, Elliott's office has presented their program on gun violence restraining orders to over 250 law enforcement agencies. Governor Gavin Newsom recently allocated an additional $250,000 to continue that work. The gun violence restraining order bills sponsored by Assemblymembers Ting and Irwin are still awaiting a decision. Sophia Garcia was awarded a domestic violence restraining order, and her ex-husband eventually surrendered all of his firearms. I felt such a sense of freedom. Um, I felt so free after leaving him and having this TRO in place and a custody agreement that I know I wouldn't have been able to do by myself. Like, there's no way that I could have navigated through these systems um, had I not gone into the, the clinic and had I not gotten the support from the director, you know, and from my attorney. Like, there's absolutely no way that I'd be where I am now. And um, so now, I mean, like, I was able to go back to working full-time. I was able to uh, get a promotion, several promotions at work. Um, I was able to buy my house as a single mom. Um, you know, I finished my undergrad. I I, um, I went back to school and I finished my undergrad, and now I'm a grad student about to finish her grad program. So, I mean, there's so many things that I feel like um, I've been able to accomplish since then that, you know, had I stayed in that relationship, I wouldn't have been able to do or I would have possibly been dead. It's been seven years since Sophia left her ex-husband. The restraining order is no longer in effect because it expired after three years. And she has to co-parent her son with him, so they're still in contact on a regular basis. Because of the trauma she suffered, Sophia says she hasn't felt comfortable enough to start dating again. Her ex-husband, however, has since remarried and Sophia says she hears that there's volatility in that relationship, too. For Making Contact, I'm Monica Lopez in Los Angeles. You've been listening to Guns and Restraining Orders on Making Contact. For resources and information about intimate partner violence, gun violence, or the people you heard in this program, check out our website at radioproject.org. That's radioproject.org.
This documentary was produced as a project for the USC Annenberg Center for Health Journalism's 2019 California Fellowship. The show was written, produced, and engineered by Monica Lopez. Editorial support, Catherine Stifter and Susan Racho. Production assistants, Michelle Martin, Hank Hadley, Salima Hamarani, and Lisa Rudman. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Redman. Producers Anita Johnson, Salima Hamarani, and Monica Lopez. Associate Producer Aisha Chowdhury. Audience Engagement and Web Coordinator Dylan Hoyer. And I'm Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.